0: Did talk um, well, I looked uh, this morning. Uh, actually, at the weather in Spokane it was minus one degrees. It's six inches of snow on the ground. It was uh, blowing forty miles an hour yesterday. So uh, pray for our church. I hope they met this morning. <laughs> so uh, they're pretty. You know, it, actually we've had a pretty mild winter, but uh, not the last few days. And so, uh, so I talked to my wife, and she sends her greetings and looking forward to. Uh, being back with you uh, this fall and just asked me that I don't mess things up too much before she gets here. So uh, she's looking forward to um, coming to be with you. And so it's a great joy to be with you. I, um, I, uh, I know how much I love Kenny and Sybil and and um, some of you know that a few weeks ago you had our crazy friend Don Babbitt here. You remember? Amen. Is he nuts or what? I mean I, I'm kind of that way but He makes me seem pretty calm when you're around him, and just, so um, last summer we were able um, up in a crossover to have Kenny and Don come together, and so all three of us were together for the first time in 30-something years, and we had a great time. No one was arrested. Um, No one left the church, so we just considered it a great, great, uh, great weekend, so amen. Well, um, I've been telling our people, I I feel at home here, so I feel like I can share my heart with you. I am. I guess it's better than lying, wouldn't you say? Um, I've been telling our people this year as we've started into a new year, um, i ask our people throughout the month of January, I said, well, why is it that we always want things to be so easy? Especially when it comes to our walk with the Lord, when Jesus said sometimes, uh, matter of fact, oftentimes life is going to be anything but easy. And I've kind of turned that thought around and asked people this question. Um, in 2019, why not be willing to do the hard thing? Amen. When, Especially when it comes to our walk with Jesus and our love. Anybody here today? Now, i, I like a little feedback, okay? Anybody here today love Jesus? Amen. Amen. Not just a Sunday morning answer, okay? You really love Jesus? Okay. And we've been singing these great, great songs that talk about all the work that he's done for us. Anyone grateful for all the work that Jesus has done for us? Death, and burial, and resurrection. Thank you, God. Anybody happy for, about that? Three people. Let me ask a question again. Hello? You can get out of here early if you'll answer the first time, all right? You just <laughs> lost 15 seconds right there. You Know what I'm saying? All right. So, you're grateful for what Jesus has done for you. Yes. So, if life gets a little hard sometimes and living for him becomes a little difficult, we shouldn't whine about that fuss about that. So, this morning, we have some work to do. I'm going to be, I'll tell you what we're going to be doing. I want, um, I want you to turn to two places with me. First of all, to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, and uh, you know, the reason we have ten fingers is those are like ten bookmarks, and so when we run out of fingers, we run out of Scripture, okay? All right, so you have different places you need to get to. Romans 15, and then turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 31. Now, this is the work that we have to do this morning. We're going to be looking at an Old Testament, several Old Testament passages, and when we uh, hear a message from the Old Testament, it takes more, here's the word, Work, four-letter word, bad word, work. And we need to apply it to our spiritual lives. You know, sometimes I think we'd like to look, you know, one little verse in the New Testament, get it over with, hear the sermon, get out of here. But sometimes we have, there's, and I will promise you today, if you will follow along in this Old Testament narrative that we're going to be looking at, at the end, keep working, at the end we're going to come through with an application I think will be a challenge. I'm not saying it's going to be something you're going to like, But it will be a challenge to you as well. Now, um, our people over the years have been pastoring crossover now for 24 years, started the church 24 years ago. I I love being around our people because the great majority of our people are spiritually sensitive people. They really deeply love the Word of God. Uh, They they don't like just to come hear a sermon. They really want to hear the Word of God. See, uh, I need to tell you this in front of your pastor. You know, when he gets up on a Sunday morning or I get up on a Sunday morning, his opinion matters nothing. Amen. My opinion matters nothing. It may be a good, in fact, I think most of my, my opinions are pretty good, but, but they don't have the power to change your life. So God has given us his book, the Inspired and Errant Word of the Living God. It's absolutely true all the way from Genesis, Revelation, even the Concordance, I believe, is mostly true. <laughs> so you and I need to get this, you know. When we hear from God, we're responsible to him as to, to, to respond to that. Now, my people have been sharing with me um, a lot, and they listen to preachers on the radio and stuff more than I do. Um, And there seems to be a trend in the American church today that's disturbing to me that seems to want to, um, and I'm not talking about cults and things like that. I'm talking about within the bedrock mainstream church that seems to want to dismiss the Old Testament and uh, talk about how we believe it. But it's really not relevant. Can I just stop right there if this isn't part of the message? But I've been teaching on the Wednesday nights a series in the book of Jude, chapter 1, eight parts to it. And do you know Jude, v- verse 5, you can look it up later on. Jude, verse 5 says, and I just love this. You know how the children of Israel were in Egypt, Right? Yeah. Right. All right. That's like North of Rockport. Okay. All right. They were in Egypt for 400 years. Then God let them, let them, led them out of Egypt. Who who led them out of Egypt? All right. Moses. We know that's true. Now get this. Jude 5 says that Jesus saved the people out of Egypt. Are you putting that together? Egypt. In the wilderness. How many agree? That's an Old Testament event. All right? And we talk about it not being relevant. But the scripture says that Jesus, Jesus, Jesus led them out and saved them out of Egypt. Now, I am not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but that tells me something. Jesus was in the Old Testament, he is all over the Old Testament. Anyone here today grateful for what Jesus has done for you? His blood? His blood? You know what I really believe? I re- you know, there's so many t- people sitting in churches today that are lackadaisical about that. Do you understand? And this is just stuff on my heart. That we really cannot understand the significance of the blood until we understand the depth of the sacrifice back in the Old Testament. So, it all forms a basis. Now, we're going to get the Old Testament in just a minute, but I want to show you something here in Romans chapter 15. What Paul said about the Old Testament, starting in Romans 15, and let's um, look in verse 4. Romans 15, verse 4. And Paul says, for whatever was written in the former days. He's talking about Old Testament stuff there. Whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction. Can I ask you to use a few hand signals with me? Whatever was written in the former day was written for... All right. Look at the person next to you Said this is for you. All right. Here we go. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction. Now, now get this. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Now that's talking about Old Testament scripture. You know, sometimes we don't think like that. We don't. in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, where Paul says, All scripture has been inspired by God. You ever heard that verse? Does it ever occur to us the only scripture he had then was Old Testament? So there's no way that you can dismiss this. Now... Here's what Paul says about this. He said, we're to receive instruction from the Old Testament. He goes on to say this. He said, the Old Testament scriptures are actually designed to be a source of, he says two things here, endurance and encouragement. Is there anybody in the house today that could testify? You know what? There are times in my life that I could use a little more endurance and a little more encouragement than I have. Paul said, I'll tell you where you can find that. (laughs) You can find it on the left-hand side of Matthew. Old Testament. That's exactly what he's talking about. Let me show you a byproduct of this. And I, just, you know, I love this thing called the church. Continue to read with me. He says in verse 5, May the God of endurance and encouragement, he mentions those again, grant you to live in such harmony with one another. Remember a while ago you were fellowshipping with one another? That's what he's talking about. That you may live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Jesus, with Christ Jesus. I love verse 6 that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, where I'm a big proponent of having, teaching our people to have quiet times, private times of worship and devotion with God. But I'm also a big proponent of, of corporate worship. I love Romans 15:6. I've been teaching our, trying to teach our people this. You know, we become kind of individualistic within the church, and you are not, and praise God, I love the spirit of fellowship here. So, but the idea is this. As we come together on Sunday mornings and whenever you gather, it's not just that God hears you and you and you and you and you. The scripture says, I love this, with one voice. Can you imagine the ears of God tuned in this morning to Walter Road Baptist Church? And the bottom line, he doesn't just want to hear me and Kenny and Sybil and everyone. Up here. He wants to hear all of us. If you can imagine, one voice rising up to the glory of God. Isn't that an amazing thing? He said, now that happens when you love the word of God and you love one another. Isn't that just an amazing thing? He said, by the way, you know where you learned that? Old Testament. Old Testament. It's just an amazing thing. Now, I ask you, yeah, you used your finger a while ago. ask you to turn to another passage. What was it? I don't think so. Yeah, it was. 1 Samuel 31. 1st Samuel 31. So this morning, I want to show you something. David is the most famous beloved king in Israel's history. And when we get to the uh, end of 1st Samuel chapter 31 and 2nd Samuel chapter 1, he is about to become the king of Israel. And he's about 30 years old at this point, and he's going to be king for 40 years. And how well known all that is documented and how well known all that is. But um, what I wanted to show you here, there's an event that's somewhat obscure that we don't talk about a whole lot that had a significant impact on David's life and ministry, and it was the death of his predecessor, Saul. And I want to go back this morning and look at that. Um, you know, you may be reminded that uh, Saul and David kind of had a love-hate relationship. Um, uh, bottom line is Saul hated David, and David loved Saul, um, Saul considered David an enemy. You may remember David was the one who killed the Goliath. Yep. Everybody remember that? If I'm off here, so said, no, no. Am I right about that? All right. He killed Goliath. And that was really kind of uh, David's coming out party, if you will. He was kind of obscure before that shepherd on the backside of the Judean hillside. So he comes out of, out of nowhere, this kind of little ruddy little teenager guy with a sling and a stone, and he slew the, the giant. And in First uh, Samuel chapter eighteen, you record the event where David and Saul are making their way back home, and the Bible says that the ladies begin to sing. All right, you may remember what their song was. They were praising God for the victory and all this kind of stuff. But they had this little refrain in the song that kind of made the top forty there in Israel. And uh, the, the bottom line, Saul didn't like it. The words went something like this: Saul has slain his thousands. Woohoo! But David has slain his ten thousands. The scripture says Saul didn't like that. And he became very angry and jealous of David from that time. And the Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 18, he had his eye on David from that day forward. Now, if you continue to read, David was about 16, 17 at that point. for the next 14 years, he was basically a fugitive on the run from Saul. And Saul was always trying to kill him. Every, about every chapter you read about this spear going right by David's head. You also remember that David had several opportunities in different places in the caves, like in Gedi and places like that, to put Saul down, to have him killed. But every single time, he would bypass that. I, I, don't, know if I, was, uh, I don't know if I was David, if I would have done that, you know, but he did. And he basically because he believed in a principle, we're going to look at it here in just a few moments, David believed in the biblical principle of do not touch the anointed. In other words, when God has elevated a person to a place of primarily spiritual leadership, celebrated leadership, we need to trust that God put him there, God will take him out, and it's not in our job to deal with that. And, you know, sometimes I need to tell you, American Christians have an authority problem. We forget those kind of things, but it's just really, really important. Now, when we come to 1 Samuel chapter 31... I want to give you three things if you're taking notes today. The first thing I want you to see is this. Come back to Saul's death. And I want you to see, this is really kind of the centerpiece. The Bible says that Saul was killed by an Amalekite. He was killed by an Amalekite. And I want you to read uh, several passages, several verses here. Starting in 1 Samuel chapter 31. And uh, Saul's in his last battle here. And the scriptures tell us in verse 3 that the battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. He knew that principle I just told you about. Therefore, now I want you to see this in verse 4. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon him, And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all of his men on the same day together. Now, the reason I want to show you this, I want to set you up. It seems to indicate here that Saul fell or thrust himself on his own sword, kind of committed suicide. But I want you to turn to the very next chapter, because what we find in 2 Samuel chapter 1 is he actually had help. Now, the, folks, I just think this is just really, really important. You know, sometimes when you're reading the Gospels, there's people, you know, there's people out there who are kind of looking for problems with the Bible and say, well, this passage doesn't say the same, this same thing as this passage. I need to tell you, there's no contradiction in the Word of God. But sometimes there is clarification. In other words, when you're reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you realize that all those authors wrote from a different point of view and sometimes they would add things that another author wouldn't add. That's really important. You know, sometimes, sometimes I don't just want to preach a sermon. I want to help you understand God's word, okay, the word of God. Now, as we go from 1 Samuel 31 to 2 Samuel chapter 1, there's something added here that we didn't realize. 1 Samuel 31, let me have your attention. It makes it kind of clear that Saul kind of fell on his sword and kind of killed himself. Second Samuel chapter 1, we find things are actually a little bit different. Let's start in verse 1. Here's a lengthy passage, so stay with me. Do the work. And after the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, get that word Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell on the ground and paid homage. And David said to him, where did he come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me what happened in the battle. And he he answered, the people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. This is the first time David hears this. And Saul and his son Jonathan, David's best friend, are also dead. Then David said to the young man, testing out a story, David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance, I happened to be on Mount Geboa. And there was Saul leading on a spear, just like we read, leading on a spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were uh, close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and he called me and I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? And I want you to hear this answer. Hear this answer. And he said to me, who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. Help me here. What kind of person was he? At uh, What? I didn't hear you. All right, Old Testament word. Here we go again. I'm what? I'm an Amalekite. Remember that. All right? And he said, he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my, my life still lingers. So, I, so here's what the Amalekite said. So I stood beside him and killed him because I was sure that he would not live after he had uh, fallen. Now, here's the clarification chapter 31 1 Samuel says that Saul fell on the sword second Samuel chapter 1 says yes but he had some help and Amalekite helped me. what kind of person Malachi. pushed him shoved him helped him in other words it was the Amalekite himself according to the word of God that actually killed him remember that part i said a few months ago about do not touch the anointed watch this drop down to verse 13 and David said to the young man who told him where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner and a Malachite. And David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said to him, Go execute him. And he struck him down and he died. He still believed in the promise. Now, I want you to write something down if you're taking notes. Help me here. So Saul was killed by what kind of person? Amalekite. All right. Now, I want you to write this down. He was killed by a man and a person who never should have been there. Who should not have even existed and who should not have even been alive. But he was killed by an Amalekite. Let's have a church around. How many agree? The Bible says pretty clearly he was killed by an Amalekite. Can you raise your hands? All right, on a, oh, one more. How many see? you got to see this, folks, this sets up everything else. He was killed by the Malachite. All right, got to get that. Now, the reason this is interesting is that Saul had had a problem with the Malachites earlier at another time in his life. Go back. Go back to 1 Samuel chapter 15. So why do you turn from passage to passage? I've always done this. And here's what I tell my people. Brothers and sisters, the best commentary on the Word of God is the Word of God. The best commentary on the Word of God is the Word of God. I want you to say that with me. The best commentary on the Word of God is the Word of God. From time to time, how, how many of you know everything about the Bible there is possible to know? Who else? How many, think, how many are more like me say, so you know, when it comes to knowing Scripture, there's a whole lot I still have to find out. And from time to time, you'll read across. You'll come across a passage that's hard to understand. You know. You know. Sometimes the best, the best thing for us to admit when it comes to Bible interpretation here are three sacred American words. What does that mean? I don't know. I don't know. Are there parts where you still have to say I don't know? I don't know. Because you know what happens sometimes, especially with pastors. Because sometimes we can have egos. When someone in our church comes and asks us about something, you know, I don't want to appear dumb. They kind of know that anyway, but I don't want to appear dumb. And so I say, what does this mean? And my answer is, I don't know. And I've heard sometimes people make up answers that they really didn't know, and that hurts people. Now, if you continue to read in the Scripture, here's what you'll find. At a time that the Lord will appoint for you, he will show you a passage that will cause you to go, ah, oh, now I know what that one means. You know why? Because the best commentary on the Word of God is the Word of God. We can do that a little bit louder, can't okay? we? I want to, I want my people to hear this back in Spokane. Okay, so we now have kindred spirit. The best commentary on the Word of God is the Word of God. I'm going to send you a video sometime because when I say that in the church service, they say it. So I'm going to send it to you. So you, all right, so you remember now we have kindred spirit with those guys in Spokane. All right, First Samuel chapter 15. Did I mention that the Amalekite who killed Saul wasn't even supposed to be there? He was supposed to be a dead man. Let me show you how we know that. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 15, the Lord gives Saul a command. Remember, he was the first king in Israel. And he gave the, 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 the Saul a command. He said, now go and strike Amalek. And that's another word for Amalekite. I'll show you where that comes from in just a few moments. He goes, now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction. Now, I have an ESV version when it says to, to devote to destruction. It basically is uh, Hebrew for wipe them all out. Don't even leave the dust of the ground. Totally annihilate the entire population. In fact, the idea of devoting to destruction is this. It's actually a spiritual thing that you obey God and do this. That's the idea behind the line. So go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Now I'm gonna, I know if you're going to read, see if you can read this with me. Devote to destruction all that they have. All that they have. Help me here. What does the word all mean? Part of what they have? Some of what they have? No, no. All of what they have. All right? Go, now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep and camel and donkey and squirrels. Everything. All right, let me ask you a question. This is the command of God. How many agree? It's really, really clear that God has now commanded Saul to kill all the Amalekites, every single one of them. Now, notice what he does. Drop down here, um, drop down here to verse 7. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah, as far as sure there may be been Amalekites beyond that, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that, and all that was good. And they would not utterly, Scripture says, makes, make sure we get this. God told him to utterly destroy, and the scripture says in 1 Samuel 15:9, he would not utterly destroy them. Kept some alive. You remember there was a prophet in that day, his name was Samuel, and he would come in and check on Saul from time to time, and he shows up, and Saul, this isn't going out on a limb in any measure, he was kind of a prideful guy. So he sees Samuel, the old prophet, his old mentor coming, and he runs out. It's kind of a funny story, I think. Runs out, starting in verse, in verse thirteen, and Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, "Blessed be be to uh, excuse me, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord." And notice, Saul wants to make sure you have some friends like this. were trying to. They want to make sure they get the first word in. Saul sees Samuel coming before Samuel ever gets word out. Saul goes, blessed be, you know, he gets all the perfunctory. He, he goes, I did exactly what God told me to do. I'm so proud of myself. You can just hear it in the footnotes. It's there. It's just an amazing thing. He wanted to get the first word in. And Samuel, old cranky prophet that he was, and Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And, he, and Saul said, They had, he says, they. Know any friends like that? He's the one on the hot seat. What's the first thing he does? He says, they. I tried to tell them, but they. Ah, he's just flat lying. And they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we've devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I will tell you what the Lord has said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. Now, I told you we had some work to do. We've been working through some passages. But now we kind of get to start getting to the punchlines. Here we go. And this is what the old cranky prophet had to say to Saul. Verse 22. Now, let, let me just say, that this is Old Testament. Uh, let me just be Bible teacher for a minute. Folks, 1 Samuel 15, 22, and 23 are verses that you have to know. You've got to mark these. You've got to put them someplace in your Bible. These are significant, life-powerful principles that you have to know. Have to know. This is what Samuel said to Saul. And Samuel said, has the Lord... As the Lord is great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Now, notice this line. But, but, uh, behold! Excuse me. Behold! To obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. Say that with me. To obey is better than. If you believe the Bible, won't you say it with me? It's a little louder. To obey. Okay, we're gonna say it one more time. This time, we're gonna lift up the word "better." Here we go. To obey is. Yeah, and to listen than the fat of rams for rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry well those are strong words and Samuel says to Saul this is not a salvation passage this is a discipleship passage because you have rejected the word of the Lord he has also rejected you now there's several things here I want you to write down The first thing he says here, he says, full obedience, full, complete obedience. He said it's better than religious ceremony and ritual. I've been pastoring now for a long time. Let me tell you something I believe in. I believe the church ought to come together on Sunday mornings and worship together. That won't surprise you. But let me tell you something. For many Christians in America, I'm going to say something. If you agree with me, you might just nod your head. If you don't, you'd just be wrong, so don't shame yourself. <laughs> One of the sad things that's happened in American church is we have checked Sunday morning off as a box. We can make it such a part of a ritual and a ceremony that we missed the point. But the word of God says to obey is better than sacrifice. And he's talking about full obedience, full obedience. You know what God said? He goes, look, I want you to come to church. He said, but line, if you're coming to church for the wrong reason, I want to tell you this. He goes, what I'd rather have is you obey me. Just trust me. By the way, if you get the obedience part down, you will have the church attendance part down. Get this. So full obedience. What kind of obedience? Full obedience is better than all of the religious ritual and ceremony. Now watch this. Partial obedience is the same thing as full rebellion. Full obedience is better than this. Partial obedience. You know how many times I've been so proud of myself because I've done most of what God told me to do? You know why I can be so proud of myself? Because my middle name is Saul. No, that's not true. I can be proud of myself because when I'm doing about 80% of what God told me to do, I can look around and find someone in the church that's only doing 50%. Amen? Anybody know what I'm talking about? The only thing is I'm not going to stand before that person someday. He's not the one I'm accountable to. And I begin to think, I'll, I begin to get all prideful. In you know, Lord, bottom line, Lord, we ought to cut a deal here. Lord, I'm doing about 80%. Most of those folks out there are only doing 50%. But the Word of God said, anybody believe the Bible this morning? Anybody believe the Bible this morning? The Word of God says that partial obedience is the same thing as full rebellion. Wow. And then he goes on to say this, in case we don't understand what would you do if your pastor on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night, whenever you gather, said, uh, tonight we're going to rather than have a church service, we're going to practice witchcraft? How oh, I many would have a problem with that? Ooh. Nobody had a problem with that. My church would throw stuff at me. You right, you couldn't even say the word. What if your pastor on a Sunday morning came up here, instead of a pulpit, he put a great big gold statue and asked you to come bow down to it. Huh. That would be called idolatry, right? Amen. The scripture says that our partial obedience is the same thing as rebellion, and rebellion is the very same thing as witchcraft and idolatry. Isn't it amazing? Come on, let's just help me here. Isn't it amazing? Sometimes we don't think like that. Well, you know, if I just don't want to obey over everything, that's just not a big thing. He said, no, no, no. Samuel told Saul, get this, Samuel told Saul, it's the very same thing as the practice of witchcraft and idolatry. Find it right there. It's in verse 23. Now, I want you to think about this. Go back to verse 23. He says, for rebellion is as a sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. That's where it comes from. And listen to what Samuel says to Saul. Saul's king at this point. He says, "Saul, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has rejected you from being king." How many agree? High price, high price. Now we have some things to learn from the Amalekites. Do you realize here? Now get this: these Amalekites. How many agree? God commanded to do away with them, all of them. Do you realize that the Malachites that he didn't do away with? Get this. First cost him his throne. You might say life purpose there. And then eventually cost him his life. Now, I want you to um, turn to another verse with me. Over in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I want to show you two verses here. And kind of show you how the Old Testament and New Testament work like. One of the reasons I think sometimes the Old Testament's hard for people is, you know, we've already looked at like three or four different passages. We've got one more in the Old Testament. And they're wordy and they're long and they're narrative and stuff like that. But we're in the New Testament. We're about to read two verses here. Now, get, get this Romans 8, verse 12 and 13. You want to learn a little Bible? Learn a little Bible. Romans 8, in two verses, in two verses, is basically summarizing everything we've been reading in 1 Samuel. Two verses. But the the principle is still, is there. Now, why am I talking about these Amalekites and Old Testament stuff? Here's the application. Because the Amalekites' relationship to Saul is a picture of our own flesh. Our own sin nature. The battle that we have with our own sin nature. Now, watch this. Here's the way Paul said it. Strong verses here. Isn't it amazing? I think we've kind of conditioned ourselves that all the verses in the Bible that are kind of strong must be speaking to lost people. This is not. Watch the context Romans 8, verse 12. So then, brothers, help me here. What does it say? I, I didn't hear you. What? I didn't hear it. One more time. And cisterns. So help me here. In its context, is this speaking to unbelievers or believers? Do we have any believers here today? So we can't pawn this off on someone else. This is for us. So then, brothers, I love this. We are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. I love what Paul says. He goes, I have lived my entire life indebted to the flesh. He says, but now I'm in Christ. He goes, I no longer have to live. Like that old boss, that old flesh, that old sin nature tells me to He goes, I no longer have a debt to that. And then he goes on to say in verse 13, For if you, brothers and sisters, he's speaking to believers. Look at the person next to you and say, he's speaking to believers. Now look at him and say, and especially you. All right. Verse 13. For, hey, I'm talking. Okay. For if, you live, for, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Wow. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of flesh, you will live. Um, When it says put to death, it's a picture of the crucifixion. Now come here, I want you to hear this. The Holy Spirit, who's the author of this, is not asking God to do this for you. He's commanding you and I, just like he did with Saul. because you have issues in your flesh, in your old sin nature, old habits, character flaws. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? How many of you know some people in here that have some character flaws? Could you point to them? I can give you a list. <laughs> he says, kill it. And it's a picture of a crucifixion. Do you understand today, if we were to actually put a graphic picture up there of what it looked like when Jesus died up on the cross, you probably wouldn't sit here. You would have to go out to the restroom to puke. Does anybody follow what I'm saying? It was offensive. It was gross. His body looked like bleeding hamburger meat. And that's fine for him. No, no, Paul says, I'm asking you to do the same thing. Uh, some of us here today have some character flaws. And some of us have some nasty old habits that's been hanging around for a long time. And we excuse it in the name of it. That's just the way I am. Hey, it may be the way you are, but it's not the way Jesus wants you to be. Exactly. Exactly. And Paul said, I want you to go get so sick of that that you're willing to take nails yourself and drive it into the wood and drive it. Because I want you to make a bloody mess of your flesh. Just like I told Saul to do the the Amalekites. Wow. Blood splattering everywhere. Pain and grief. Now watch this. I always pray, God do this, God do this, God do this. Here's what I'm learning. There's no change that comes about in our life apart from God's power. Everybody agree with that? But nearly every significant change that takes place in our life begins with our initiation. He said, I will come behind you and empower you, but not to you're willing to take it to the cross. It's just an amazing thing. Now, I want to show you something. Back to Saul. Remember where we started? Help me here. Saul was killed by what kind of person? He was killed by a man... Who should never have even been there. Now, here's a lesson. If you don't hear anything else, please hear this one. When it comes to our flesh and our sin nature, that which we do not destroy will eventually come back and destroy us. Can I show you something here? Back in Romans 8 12. No. Yeah. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Verse 13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you if you live according to the flesh, you will die. If you let you as believers, as believers, this whole idea that once I get saved, I no longer deal with the flesh, that's f- false teaching. Let's just have a church vote. How many of you say, Well, I do. <laughs> You know, maybe it's only for Walden and people. Maybe so. The truth of it is, as a believer, after you get saved, you still deal with the flesh. And he said, learn from Saul. That which in the right time of your life you don't deal with will come back and take your life. And he used the word die, and I want you to hear this. When you go back and do a study in the book of the in the New Testament, the word die you'll find that oftentimes it's not referring to eternal death because these people are saved. Hey, these people are saved. Hey, these people are saved. Nor is it referring to physical death. It's referring to someone who's been saved for a while, but their spiritual life just shrivels up. Folks, I've been in the ministry now for over 40 years. And I run into people that go to church whose spiritual life is just shriveled up. They come every Sunday morning, sing the same old songs, but the bottom line is there's no obedience. And I've run into a few of these, especially guys, I like to challenge our men. Dealing them with pornography, dealing them with mistreating their wives, not loving their wives. Dealing with plain old selfishness, dealing with meanness and stuff like Anybody know what I'm talking about? Some of them dealing with stuff that's happened to them, But the bottom line is they don't deal with it. I, um, I went to see a 74 year old guy a few weeks ago who's a good friend of mine. Listen closely. Just a few years ago, he was a multimillionaire. Robust, kind of proud of himself pretty arrogant even a few years ago he's a friend of mine i said i challenge him to be faithful to the church i challenge him to become a man of god's word i challenge him to be more intentional more obedient but he had his life and had all the stuff you know you know we're busy we got our jobs all that kind of stuff and he kept on taking god and just moving god further and further and further out of his life even though he came to church every sunday anybody follow what i'm saying I couldn't help but think the other day, he looks so dead, Spiritual, physically alive, but spiritually there's nothing ticking. To... And the Bible says when it comes to our flesh, in the right time of our life, like a Sunday morning like today, when we have an opportunity to deal with stuff, if we don't deal with it, it'll come back and deal with us. And marriages fall apart. And children walk away. We're, we're paying a pretty high price, brothers and sisters, for living in the flesh sometimes. Help me here one more time. What kind of person killed Saul? No. Should he have ever been even been there? No. no. Why was he there? Because Saul only partially obeyed. By the way, I want you to go back to the book of Exodus in chapter 17. Exodus, and here's what's interesting, God had already told the Israelites how to deal with the Amalekites, and the first time it's mentioned, I believe in the principle, the first mention, and you saw a few moments ago where God told Saul, go kill the Amalek, that's another word for the Amalekites, because that's the name of their founder, and Amalek is first mentioned in Exodus chapter 17, if you want to learn a little Bible, this is pretty cool, Amalek is the uh, grandson of a guy named Esau, Jacob and Esau. And the Bible says, everyone thinks Esau is a lost person. Listen to what the scripture says. The scripture says that Esau sold his birthright. The fact that he had a birthright means he was saved because lost people don't have birthrights, spiritual birthrights. But he sold his birthright. Does anyone anyone here today say, I know what that means? You You want to know what that means? Basically what that means, you read in Hebrews and read in Genesis chapter 5, that Esau sold his birthright because he wasn't really interested in spiritual things. Following God and serving God, pursuing God, really didn't matter. So the bottom line, he thought, I'm never going to need my birthright anyway. So he sold it, how many of you know this, over a bowl of soup. That's what he did. That's what Two generations later, there's a guy named Amalek, his grandson. And Amalek, come to find out, was one of the first battles and one of the first opponents that Israel had. Remember, they were in Egypt. They are on their way to the Promised Land. Do you realize it was the Amalekites? Get this? The flesh? The flesh? One of the first opponents they faced out of Egypt. And I love this story. So here comes Amalek in Exodus 17, verse 8. I just have to read this. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And so Moses, goes all the way back to Moses. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. And tomorrow, he said, I want you to find some guys, go fight. Here's what I'm going to do. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses and Aaron and Hur went up on top of the hill. And whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, just like we do in our spiritual lives. Moses' hands grew weary, and they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with a sword. Did I mention the Amalekite that killed Saul should never have been there? Because back in 1 Samuel 15, the narrative the passage, God told him, wipe them out, get rid of them. Well, you go all the way back to Moses, God says, and I'll tell you how to do that. Here's how you deal with the Amalekites. And remember, folks, what we're really talking about is flesh, our own sin nature. And he says, you're going to need four things Can I just ask you not to raise your hand? I just want you to be honest with yourself. Is there anyone here today who would say, I recognize today I have at least one area of my life, some old nasty habit or some character flaw within me that needs to go away. You don't have to raise your hand. One's going to raise your hand. Anyone says, yeah, that's fine. Okay. And God says, if you're serious about that, not just a Sunday morning answer, but you're serious about that, he goes, I'll tell you how to deal with the Amalekite in your life. He said, first of all, you're going to need some courageous men. He told Joshua, he goes, I want you to choose some guys. These cannot be volunteers. He said, man, you're going to, you're going to, face, the, you're going to face Amalek. He's not some light foe. You take the strongest, most courageous men you have and go out there. You know what he's saying? I get this. If you're going to defeat that old nasty thing, you know, it affects your marriage, it affects your family, it affects your mind, it affects everything. You know, you wonder why there's no zeal in your spiritual life? Because there's something there. And said, so step one, he said, we're looking for some men and women who will flat step up to the plate and have the courage to face it. Hey, quit blaming on mom and dad. Quit blaming on society. Quit blaming on the culture. And say, hey, this is me. I own it. It's going to have to start right there. Second thing is, it's going to require the Lord's help, and I know that's obvious. May I suggest to you, it wasn't every day that Moses went up to the top of the mountain with Aaron and her and held his hands up. I'm He probably didn't do that very often. But he knew this. For him to be ready to fight the Amalekites, he had to do something he hadn't done before. Do you know why a lot of Christians sitting in church today get defeated by the flesh? It's because the spiritual life that they've had at this point is not strong enough to face the next battle. And do you realize that when you get serious, when I get serious about dealing with the flesh, it may be that God calls me to go to a mountain and go someplace with him I've never been before. I was telling Kenny and Sybil last night, I see this happen all the time. You know, we have discipleship classes and trying to get people to grow, and people are busy, they got schedules, they can't go. And next thing you know, bang, 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 there's a crisis, something happens. I'm going agree. Something's going to happen. And if you wait until the season of crisis to get strong, I can't talk like I do in my church, but I'll tell you this. You're going to get your tail kicked. It's going to require the Lord's help. It's going to require that you walk with Jesus in a place You've never walked before. Third thing is this. It's going to require a few loyal friends. Moses said, I've got a big task. He asked Aaron and her to go with him. Now, let me tell you, I've been a pastor for a long time. I love this thing called the church. I love this thing called the church. My conviction is there's great, great healing within the body of Christ. And can I say this? I'm not just talking about the physical. I'm talking about spiritual, emotional, deep-rooted stuff. But let me tell you how God works. Sometime for us to receive healing, it's going to require that we swallow our pride. How many times have you walked in? How are you doing? I'm fine. Man, you ain't been fine since Jesus came the first time. And God says sometimes... When you're going through a battle, you need to come up to a friend and say, Brother, boy, I'm struggling. I'm not treating my wife right. I've got an anger issue. My mouth just, I'm going through depression. And the word of God says there are some things that we go through that are serious enough. We need to bring some friend. Hey, not, not someone who will tell you what you want to hear but someone who will come along and help you hold, hold your hands up. The fourth thing, he says, you're going to need. Let me just read this again. Verse 13. Doesn't, it's not hard to figure this one out. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. He said the fourth thing you're going to need is a good dose of the word of God. folks, if you were to visit Crossover Church, you would get so tired of hearing this. The pastor up there at that crazy place tells our people all the time, be in the word, be in the word, be in the word. Good morning. It's good to see you. Be in the word. How you doing? Have a good Be in the word, be in the word, be in the word, be in the word, be in the word. We have entire text groups today, today all across our church who hold one another accountable every day for the word of God. Because man's word doesn't change lives, but God's word does. And he says, you're going to need the sword. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, you know what it's called, the sword of the spirit, the word of the living God. Folks, I've been doing this for a long, long time. I know I look like I'm 39, but I'm not. (laughs) And there's a big difference, brothers and sisters, between people sitting in church on Sunday morning who spend time in the word of God, and those who don't. Can I show you one more thing? Just one more verse. Except the three or four, no, just one more verse. Can I ask you to turn to Acts 13. Acts 13, you remember Saul died, David's about to ascend to the throne, I'm going to be preaching on that at, my church next Sunday. How that happens? In Acts thirteen, there's an interesting commentary from the Apostle Paul about David. As I read this verse, can I just ask you? Say, yeah, I'd, I'd like that to be my life. Can I just ask you to raise your hand? Acts thirteen thirty six. This is what this is what Paul said about David years later. He says, for David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, David, after he served the purpose of God, served the purpose of God, can you say that with me? After he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers. Church vote. That's the way to go. That's the way to go. David served his purpose and fell asleep. You know what I think Saul's purpose was when he became king and all that, but you know what I think his his life purpose was, he missed. Are you ready? I'm about done. Tune into this. I believe Saul's life purpose was to get rid of the Amalekites so the next generation, David's generation, wouldn't have to. But the Bible says that the last Amalekite was killed, not under Saul, but under David. And I think Saul missed the opportunity to get rid of the Amalekites so Israel, who he loved, would never have to deal with them again. Those are your parents and grandparents. You follow what I'm saying? I mean, what an amazing life purpose you realize that one of our major life purposes in this life is to crucify the flesh? This is going to get a little close to home. you ready for this? And one of the reasons God wants us to crucify the flesh is so the generations that come behind us won't have to. Do you get this? David basically had to clean up Saul's mess. And I've watched a lot of men, and women, but men, not deal with their stuff. And next thing you know, their stuff, whatever the stuff is, rises up in the next generation. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Remember, here's the principle. That which we do not destroy may come back and destroy us. And it may destroy the generation after us. And the reason God wants us to deal and put to death the Amalekites in our lives so that those that come after us won't have to. Is there anybody in the house today who would say that in itself is reason enough for me to deal with the Amalekites. Let's pray.